It's sometimes not the natural disasters around the world that can cause us to have the most profound questions. Sometimes it is. But it's often the disasters that strike our own lives. The losing of a loved one, the diagnosis from a doctor, the pain of seeing a relationship end. On a personal level, they can be the hardest places to work out what's wrong with the world. Perhaps because we end up with a sense of, I don't deserve this. Or maybe it's because we believe that everybody's entitled to a happy life. But what is wrong with the world? What is the fundamental fissure? And it's interesting, isn't it, that whether you look at Doctor Who, for those of you that are Doctor Who fans, um, one series had a, a fissure in the universe. A big line that went through everything, hidden and present, never really explained completely. Perhaps that's because even the best sci-fi writers can't do it. Or you're a person who loves the movie and the book, The Fault in Our Stars. It doesn't really matter what you're looking at. Everywhere around you, people are asking the same question. What's wrong with the world? Not just in sermons. Harry Truman, the American president, once said this in answer to the question. Selfishness and greed, individual or national, cause most of our troubles. I'm not entirely unconvinced by that argument. I think that that's true. But it doesn't really explain some of the stuff you saw on the screen, does it? So what is it? Over the last few weeks, we've been going through um, different, big and difficult questions. I'm not pretending for one moment to have given you all the answers, but I've tried to help you think a bit about them. Who am I? And why am I here? with the first two questions that we looked at. And tonight, I want to explore this with you. What's wrong with the world? And each week, I've taken some of the big isms of our society and our worldview, and I've asked, what do they say in answer to the question, who am I? What do they say in answer to the question, um, why am I here? What do those isms say in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? Materialism doesn't really have an answer other than to say, we need to work harder to fix it. If we had more stuff, we'd be better off. Hedonism, the idea that we're here to enjoy life and be happy, says that here's what's wrong with the world. It's too dark. It's too dreary. It's too boring. It's too difficult. Just throw off restraint and enjoy yourself. Capitalism says, here's what's wrong with the world. We're not wealthy enough. If we had more money, there would be less trouble. Marxism says, here's what's wrong with the world. There's been a class struggle from civilization began. It's always the poor fighting the rich, and it's always the rich's fault, which is always a bit weird, but anyway. Um, and nihilism says, nothing's wrong with the world. This is just what life is like. It is utterly chaotic. There is no rhyme. There is no reason. Why try to make the world a better place at all? The problem is that none of those isms give an answer that really satisfy. Materialism has been tried and tested and doesn't work. Doesn't matter how much stuff you have, there's still a problem in the world. Hedonism. If we are only here to be happy, what happens if your happiness is at the expense of somebody else's misery? It doesn't work. There has to be something bigger than you in the universe. There has to be something worth more than just you getting your way. What happens if you're driving down, I'm sure none of you have ever experienced this in the last few months, you're driving through Dundonald, and you're a motorist, and you think that you have a right to get from Newton Ards to um, the city hospital on two lanes. And you are upset and annoyed that somebody would dare to suggest that a glider might create a better transport system that would make people happier. 
Whose happiness wins in that argument? Some of you do not want to say because you know that there are people that work for the transport authority here. Doesn't give any answers. Capitalism. Well, capitalism really is at the heart of most of the governments of the Western Hemisphere. And it's not fixing the problems. It's not sorting it out. They're still there. Marxism. The idea that it's a class struggle and if we could overcome the struggle between classes would be all right. It hasn't worked either. It didn't address the issues of the world. You, like me, saw the wall coming down in 1989 if you were alive then. Um, you saw Lenin statues being pulled over. You saw Ceausescu being run out of Romania. You saw it the same as I did because those struggles um, didn't address the real problem in the world. And nihilism just doesn't work because it doesn't care. I guess if I'm trying to answer this question for you, if I'm trying to help you think it through, a lot depends on your view of the world. Are you a person who believes that you were designed or that you just happened? Because if you believe you just happened, then actually there's nothing wrong with the world. It's just the way life is. Life is miserable. It's a dog-eat-dog place, and there's nothing worth fighting for except you and what you want. If you don't have a sense of purpose or identity or meaning or significance or value, then you can't really point at the world and say it's an unhappy place because you're defining unhappiness through a lens that doesn't really make sense. If you simply happened, if you simply um, came about as a result of a whole mixture of things going on billions of years ago, then you're just caught up in some kind of cosmic tumble dryer that's working itself out. So actually let your worldview work all its way through and you'll get to a place where you say, I can't really complain with what's wrong with the world. Earthquakes, disasters, terrorist attacks, it's nothing other than examples of either an organic or an inorganic type of evolutionary process where it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. However, Christianity doesn't believe that. And actually, I think most people don't believe that. We're just not willing always to kind of let our arguments reach their logical conclusion. We stop short because reaching the logical conclusion of our position is difficult. If there's no purpose in life, if there's no reason to be here, then you can't really start to say what's wrong with the world because you're only asking that question because you think that there is some kind of definition of what could be right with it. It's an interesting and challenging thing for me to start to try and unpack to you in 15 or 20 minutes what Christianity believes about what is wrong with the world. In one sense, it's a Sunday school class. And many of you will think, I know what he's going to say, and you're probably right. In another sense, it's a complicated, profoundly personal, and very deep question that you've got to navigate for yourself. Because you're going through stuff that I'm not going through, and I'm going through stuff that you're not going through. G.K. Chesterton, a man I will return to a couple of times tonight, um, wrote a book in 1910. I commend those of you that enjoy reading uh, to the book and the book to you called What's Wrong with the World? It's an interesting read. He said this in it, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So the place that I want to start is by suggesting to you that Christianity has an answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? But it's a pretty personal answer. It reaches into you and me. It doesn't reach over there to the baddies. It doesn't reach into some other people group and say they're the problem. It reaches into the very heart of every single person here and every single person who has ever lived. There's an anecdotal story told about G.K. Chesterton, despite trying to find a source for this for about 10 years. I've never been able to find it. So if any of you can help, I'd be very grateful. The anecdotal story is that the, the London Times, the famous newspaper, around about 1908, ran a series of questions and um, sent questions to famous writers, asking them this question, what's wrong with society? And apparently they all wrote their answers. I can't find evidence of that anywhere. 
But G.K. Chesterton was supposed to have written back an answer to that question. And it went something like this. Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's where Christian theology starts. You see, it's very easy for us to begin a conversation about what might be wrong with the world by pointing at other people. In parts of the world, like the part that we're from, we've been doing it for years. It's always easier to blame somebody else. It's always easier to point the finger at someone else and say, they're the problem. If they weren't here, we'd be a happier people. If that person hadn't wrecked my family, I'd be happier. It's much harder to start answering this question by looking at ourselves and saying, might there be something wrong with me? Might there be something in my life that needs to be fixed? In Chesterton's book from 1910, he offers a critique of what's wrong with the world 108 years ago. It's the wandering heart of human beings who don't know where they belong. It's a sense of a state that's far too big and forcing people into situations that they don't want to be in. It's the mistakes that are made about gender and about where people fit. It's the way we are bringing up children. It's the way we are creating spaces that nobody else can fill. And as I read it through uh, last week in preparation for today, I thought those are still the same questions that we're asking. But what is the Christian answer? Chesterton's a bit complicated. All those big words can end up kind of eaten into us. And we can get lost in them. The Christian answer is very straightforward. You may think it is too straightforward. I don't. I think it is a profoundly important answer. There are three things wrong with the world and one cause. Sin. Self. And evil. And the cause is Satan. Our world is warped by one force, a force of selfishness and greed and hatred and violence and destruction. And it makes its way into every strata of society. It has created fissures in the very fabric of the world, the ground on which we walk. It evidences itself in our hatred of one another, our resentment of one another, our selfishness, our pride, our jealousy, our greed, our insecurities, our animosity, our suspicion. Try as I might, and I have tried over the last 32 years to find a better philosophical answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? I've never found one as strong as the Christian and Jewish answer. I've never found one that fits all the questions, that addresses all the issues. I think sometimes people think that in order to become a Christian, you have to park your brain at the door, that you're not allowed to think. I think in order to be a Christian, you should think. You should use your mind. You should ask questions. You should interrogate some of the big questions and not be afraid of the answers that you find because the answers can bring a great sense of security and strength and hopefulness to you. Christians go to the Bible to answer the big questions of life. It's the Bible that tells us who we are. It's the Bible that tells us why we are here. And it's the Bible that addresses the question of what's wrong with the world. So let me give you three examples. Follow me. If you have a Bible, you'll need to read some scriptures with me, please. First of all, Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul tells a story about himself. He was converted as a murderer. He was converted as somebody who wanted to persecute Christians. He was a zealous Jew, and he wanted to destroy the church. Then on the road to Damascus, as he was traveling there to arrest Christians and have them killed, he was converted. His life was completely transformed, and he struggled with who he was. He talks about something called sin a lot, not because he's a, a, a kind of negative grump, but because he's identifying the fundamental issue in human life. And the fundamental struggle of every human being is something that the Bible calls sin. 
Sin is anything that draws us away from God. Thoughts, feelings, attitudes, emotions, desires, our willfulness, anything that draws us away from God is called sin. Paul talks about his struggle with sin in the Bible. And in Romans chapter 7, I want you to hear this because I think it's really important. Verse 21 or I beg your pardon, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But if in fact it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me, For I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For if I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Anybody confused so far? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost self, but I see in my members another law at war within the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For those of you that like a bit of saucy reading, Romans chapter 7, verse 23 in my Bible which says, I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The word members there in Greek almost certainly means sexual organs. So Paul's getting into the nitty gritty of his challenge. Here is what he says, in case you didn't understand that. There's a whole load of stuff that I know is right and I don't do it. And there's a whole load of stuff that I know is wrong, and I do do it. And I don't want to do that. I want to do that. But I always find myself doing that. What is going on in me? That I do the thing that I know is wrong, and I refuse to do the thing that I know is right. Can anybody identify with that? The very heart of this man, the greatest theologian that the church has ever seen, says, I struggle with doing the right thing. And I struggle with it because there is a war waging in me and that war is around sin. I want to do my own thing. That's the problem with the world. In terms of society, in terms of structures, in terms of governments, in terms of politics, in terms of national policy, you can take it all the way to um, Obama if you want or to, um, what's his name, the one now? Trump if you want or to Theresa May, if you want, or to Gordon Brown. I'm trying to be apolitical so none of you fall out with me. The harder thing is you could take it all the way to Ian Paisley or to Jerry Adams and still come up with the same answer. There is something about human nature which is broken. We always want our own way. And we will do anything we can to get it. That's what's wrong with the world. How you fix it is another issue. Sin and self. Isn't it amazing that we so often assume that we are right about everything? When Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, saw him coming to be baptized in John chapter 3, he looked at him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then a verse that has liberated millions of people, including me. He must increase and I must decrease. I, a couple of weeks ago, quoted Alexander Solzhenitsyn to you a Christian dissident who was in a Russian gulag for years and won a very famous prize in the early 1980s called the Templeton Prize. And when he received it, he said, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world and what happened in Russia that destroyed this great nation 
and brought it to its knees. It wasn't communism. It wasn't the political powers. It wasn't wealth or greed. It wasn't all those big complicated things that I said in the first 10 minutes of what I was saying to you. He said, this is the problem. Men forgot God. They forgot that there was a creator. They ignored the creator and they put themselves at the center of the universe. Marriages go wrong when we put ourselves at the center of the universe. Ask anyone that's been married to an alcoholic. They can't see beyond themselves. Anyone that's married to somebody with a, a gambling addiction, anyone that is going through a marriage difficulty who would do anything to save their marriage, ask them, what's the issue? And the issue will be the other person can't see me. They can't see that there are other people involved in this. What happens in a community when it breaks down? One bit of the community says, we are the most important. We are always right. Self. That's what's wrong. That's one of the symptoms of our problem in society. It's why America is closing down. It's why Britain is redefining itself. It's why Europe is becoming an alien idea. It's why so many things happen in our lives and in our families because we see that we always have to guard ourselves. And where is the cause of this? Evolutionists will tell you that it's just a consequence of societies evolving. I don't think it is. The Christian Bible says the source of it is one entity called Satan. He's given various names. Lucifer, the father of lights. Beelzebub, the father of, or the lord of the flies. Baal, the adversary, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he has all of these different names, but he is a fallen creature, part of the hosts of heaven, that resented because of his own free choices that he wasn't the person at the center of all things and decided that he would try to wreak havoc upon the earth and as a result, wrought havoc upon the earth. You might say, why didn't God stop him? Why didn't this Christian God of yours intervene? You see, one of the things that God has done for you is giving you a free choice. One of his greatest and most liberating acts was to say, I'm not going to force Jonathan McKaig to be my friend because I can't force friendship. He must choose me. I can't force myself on him. I can't even force myself on the angels. Christian theology believes that the source of all evil is not God, it is Satan. It's his rebelliousness, it's his selfishness, it's his greed, it's his desire to control and to manipulate that has destroyed and is destroying so much of this planet, every part of it. Romans, or John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus speaking to his disciples said something very simple and very challenging. Talking about this entity, Satan, he said, he's a thief. And he comes to do three things. To kill, to steal, and to destroy. He will kill your identity. He will kill your hope. He will kill your joy. He will destroy your sense of purpose. He'll destroy your sense of worth. He will, um, he will do anything that he can. He will kill, steal, and destroy everything about you if he can. And for hundreds of years, we have seen him kill, steal, and destroy in churches and in societies and in communities. And we've blamed it on social theory and we've blamed it on freedom and we've blamed it on this political idea and that political idea, thinking that one political idea might be an answer, but none of them are. Because the, the, the root source of what's wrong with the world is linked into these three things, sin, self, and Satan. And you find all three coming together in one powerful narrative at the very beginning of the Christian and the Jewish scriptures. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, for those of you that are interested in um, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for serpent is not unlike the Hebrew word for cherubim, which is an angel. I wonder, did this creature 
who is identified in the book of Revelation, perhaps, as the deceiver, Satan, but not in the book of Genesis, appear as an angel, perhaps of light and hope and liberation. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. God didn't say that, by the way. He told them not to eat it, but he didn't say that if they touched it, they would die. People always exaggerate what God has asked of them because they think it's too hard. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig trees together and made loincloth for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate it. And then God speaks to the serpent and tells him what will happen. Sin, self, and Satan. All three in that story. All three in that account of our human ancestors. Satan deceiving Twisting the truth, lying, manipulating, controlling, and both um, the first man and the first woman falling hook, line, and sinker for it. Both of them being drawn into a conundrum of selfishness and pride. They want more. They're not content. They want to be better than God. They want to go further. They think is religion or God and relationship with them restricts them and controls them and manipulates them and doesn't give them the freedom to be themselves. That's exactly what people still say about Christianity. Why would I be a follower of a God who tells me how to behave or who challenges my ethics or tells me that I have to have this set of convictions or this set of convictions? But don't you see those questions themselves belie the fact that we've been caught in a lie? What God wants to give us is life and hope and freedom and security and peace and purpose and meaning. What Satan gives you is what looks like that, but always ends in death. It always ends in destruction. Idols eat us up. They promise the world and deliver nothing until we're left with nothing. That's what's happening in this story. That's what happens in the world. It's what causes the root of our problem. The root of our sin is putting ourselves in the place of God, like in the Genesis 3 account. The problem is that we know better, just like the Genesis 3 account, and we are manipulated and controlled by the lives of a culture or a society or a worldview that is influenced by the prince of darkness that tells us that we can be free when the only way to be free is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The result in the garden is the result that we live with. Death, destruction, pain, and brokenness. Read the next seven chapters of Genesis. Death enters in Genesis chapter four. Lies, deceit, suspicion, language confusion. Empires rise and fall. Everything falls apart as people allow themselves to be drawn into the lie that they can be free, that they don't need to be accountable, that there's no one that can tell them how to live. So what's the solution? Well, if the problem is sin, self, and Satan, then maybe Harry Truman that I quoted at the beginning of my message to you is worth quoting again. I doubt if there's any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit 
of the Sermon on the Mount. The answer is Jesus. His teaching, his example, his instruction, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his power. How does he answer those questions? Well, according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, let's deal with sin first. Listen to these words, not mine, but this Jewish convert's. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. There's the solution. Everything you've ever done wrong, carried by Jesus. Every anxious thought, every resentment, every bit of bitterness, all the struggle that Paul articulates, carried by Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us. How can that be true? Why would he do that for me? Because I know the struggle I still have with sin. The struggle that I still have to do the right thing. Like Paul, it's all dealt with by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's why I'm a Christian. He's dealt with every barrier. And you might say, I'm caught in a lifestyle. I'm caught in a habit. I'm caught in a way of thinking. I don't know right from wrong. Give it all to him. Stop trying to sort your life out and then come to Christ. Give him the mess that is your life and let him carry it. What about the issue of ourselves? How's that dealt with by God? In the very same chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How does Jesus answer that issue? Paul says this, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has gone, the new has come. So not only does he deal with sin, he deals with me. (laughs) You know that old nature that I struggle with, that bit of me that I desperately want to have excised out of my life, he deals with it. You might not believe this, but I am a new man. You think, I really wouldn't like to have met the old one. 32 years ago, I got a new life. I got a fresh start. Not only did I get my slate wiped clean, I got a new power, I got a new purpose, I got a new meaning, I got a new significance, I got a new value, I got a new worth, I got a new identity, I found a new family. In the words of the old chorus, I found a new life. One of the great and wonderful promises of God to all people and to the world is found in Revelation chapter 21 and Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18. I read these words to somebody a week ago. I read them often to people that are dying. I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth and the former things had passed away and there were no more tears and there was no more sorrow. There was no pain and no more suffering. Then here's the line. Here's the line. If you forget everything else, behold, I make all Things new. God isn't content with one part of the world being changed. That's your theology. Rock on with it. It's too small. This entire planet will be transformed. Every atom of creation will be transformed. Your struggles, your sorrows, your heartbreaks, your questions your anxieties, this broken world, God will make all things new. And he invites his people to be part of that solution. So not only does he provide a way out of sin and of self for me, he gives me a purpose. I'm now part of the army that's seeing the world changed. 
My life has a, a meaning, a significance, a value, a contribution to make. Nothing could be more exciting than that. God isn't just content to rescue us. He renews us, reforms us, remakes us, commissions us, and sends us into the world to be agents of grace and life and hope, which is why I'm so excited about all that God will have happen in our church family. And what about Satan? Well, I don't often get excited in preaching. (laughs) That's not true. You were supposed to laugh, but never mind. John 10, 10, I quoted earlier on. I have come, he has, Satan has come, the thief has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Thank God Jesus said something else. But I have come that you might have life. <laughs> and you might have it more abundantly. I'm looking out at the congregation saying, give us a bit of life tonight, Lord. That's just because we're all tired. Listen to these words from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. They are powerful, life-giving, inspiring words. Are you listening? For this reason, the Son of God was revealed. To destroy the works of the evil one. And he will destroy the works of the evil one in society. He will destroy the works of the evil one in our communities, in our families, and in your life That is why he came, to give us life and hope and meaning and purpose and significance. Now, as I round all of this together, and an encouragement to you to take on a mantle of hope and find grace and confidence in Jesus Christ, let me remind you of just a few things. Number one, when Jesus Christ died on the tree, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he became a curse for us. He bore everything for us. All of the mistakes of the world, all of the sin of society, all of the rottenness, he carried it. And he didn't only carry it, he dealt with it. It is finished. It is dealt with. There is an avenue into life for every human being on this planet. I look like I'm trying to bop. All we have to do is accept it. Now I'm going to say something now that many of you that are perhaps theologically minded will get a bit stressed out about Sin is not what will take you to a lost eternity. God has already dealt with sin. Refusing the gift of life that he offers you is what will take you to a lost eternity. And God, this is why I'm so convinced. This is why I'm a pastor, actually. And I know I'm a bit longer tonight, but this is why I'm a pastor. Because I'm utterly convinced that every single person who has ever lived... God stands in front of them in one way or another in ways I don't want to get complicated into tonight. But certainly every person that I stand in front of to talk to, I believe that part of my responsibility is to say to them and therefore to you and to you online, God has forgiven you. He has carried your sin. He has taken your shame. He has broken the curse. He has done it all. All you have to do is take the gift. You just have to say yes. And it's why I'm so passionate about being a pastor and a preacher. Because there are plenty of preachers that will tell you that God doesn't love you that much. There are plenty of people that will place religious duty on you and make you feel useless and worthless. I don't want to be one of those preachers. John said, the Baptist, John the Baptist saw his cousin coming to get baptized. I quoted it earlier on. And he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of those who believe. No, he didn't. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As an old man, John, the the writer of the general epistle said this, he is the atoning sacrifice of our sins. 1 John 2, if you're interested. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for our sins only, but also, listen to this, listen to this, also for the sins of the whole world. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John chapter 3. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Read the rest of it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
Whoever believes this will inherit life. Whoever does not believe this is condemned already. Good news. You couldn't get better. Your sin is dealt with. Your shame is dealt with. Your fear is dealt with. All you've got to do is believe it. And allow it to work its way into you and transform you and change you. And here's the, here's the cruncher. If this was a blockbuster, this would be the moment at which you were standing on your seats and going, yes! Theological expression of worship. It's Greek. <laughs> There's a little verse tucked away in Colossians chapter 2. My watch is upside down. That's not the verse. It says this. Describes the moment that Jesus was murdered. I think the word crucified can almost be sanitized. He was murdered. He was butchered. And as he was butchered on the cross, the powers of darkness, Satan himself, thought that he had won. He thought that he had defeated God. The thing he set out to do in the garden, he thought he accomplished in Gethsemane and at Calvary. But here's what Paul says about that moment. This moment when the world was in utter darkness, so dark that the creation itself was shaking. The world was covered in darkness for three hours because the one that sustained it was dying. In that moment, as the hordes of hell thought we have won, we are told that Jesus Christ cried out in the Gospels in a loud voice, it is finished. And Paul says this in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He disarmed the powers of darkness and he made a public spectacle of them, nailing them to the cross. At the moment when darkness was saying, we won, we won, we won. Jesus simply hanged on a cross and died and in words that you and I don't, he didn't say them. He said, no, you didn't. I have won this battle. I have finished this race. I have accomplished redemption and hope and possibility for all who will believe me. It is done. What you do with that is your affair. Ignore it if you like. Go back to work tomorrow and keep on living the way you do. My encouragement is to grasp it. An offer of life to everyone, an offer of grace to every person and allow the power of God to transform you. Now, here's the thing. Don't say to me, I need to fix some things before I do that. You'll never fix them. Give yourself to God now. Embrace this story now. Recognize that God has made a way now. Don't try to sort yourself out. Let God do that. Let him take you by the hand and lead you step by step through what you need to stop, what you need to lay down, what you need to give up. Don't let me do that. Don't let other people harangue you. Let God work in your life. What's wrong with the world? I am. But I have found a solution in Jesus Christ. And I am now part of the solution. Can you believe it? I know you can't. I can't believe it either. But it is true. Do you want to be part of the problem? Or do you want to be part of the solution? You decide. Let's pray. We live in a world, Lord, where there are so many things wrong and we know that they impact us. The very creation yearns for the redemption that your son is bringing. It groans under the weight of brokenness. Some of us in this room have lived with brokenness and sin and shame far too long. Let your Holy Spirit set people free across the world via the internet tonight and by, with those who will listen in the days and weeks that lie ahead. Would you help people to accept the free gift of forgiveness? 
Would you lift the weight of sin off those that have been carrying it for far too long? Would you cause people to lift their eyes to you? Those that have run away, Lord, let them run back in Jesus' name. Those that have hidden away, let them come home in Jesus' name. Those that have felt not good enough, Lord, would you pour your grace and mercy into their lives? Here in this room and across the internet, let your power be at work in your people. Draw men and women and young people into a living relationship with you, I pray. If you're watching online and you are ready to surrender your life to this gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness, you're ready to start again. And you're saying to God, take me as I am. Take all of me. Lift this weight. Lift this sin. Lift this shame. Lift this brokenness and give me hope again. Then I'm going to pray for you. And all I want you to do is drop us an email. Email my colleague who's been leading the meeting tonight, Pip. His email is pip at dundonaldelam.church. And he will be in touch with you to help you. Please do that. Don't think that because I ask that every week, it's just off pat. It's a genuine question. Don't carry this anymore. Please. And what about you here in this room? You know, some weeks are tough in ministry. It's been a tough week. Seeing people die is always tough. It breaks your heart. Because we weren't made for death, we were made for life. You weren't made to carry sin, you were made to carry hope. You weren't made to wither away under despair and sadness and sorrow. You were made for beauty and joy. God loves you. If I could lift you and carry you into the kingdom of heaven, I would. Honestly, I would do it for you. I don't get to make that choice. If you are giving your life to Jesus Christ tonight, if you're saying to him, I don't want the weight of it anymore. I don't want it. I want to be part of the solution. And you're in the room, whether you're doing it for the first time or you're recommitting your life to Jesus Christ, no one's looking. Just put your hand up and take it down again, would you? I'll see it and I'll pray for you. Straight up in the air. Don't be embarrassed. Thank you so much. Who else? God hasn't finished here. Enough running. Enough hiding. Enough locking yourself away. Enough carrying this weight. Just put your hand up. So you can point back and say, that was the day I made that decision. Thank you. Anyone else? I want to thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our church. I want to thank you for what you're doing in the internet and what you're doing in this room. I pray for those that have responded. Come by the power of your Holy Spirit and bring life to them now in Jesus' name. Bring release, the weight that they've carried. Let it be carried no more. The heartbreak that they've carried, let it be carried no more. Lord, come by your spirit and bring life and grace and hope, I pray. And thank you so much for what you're doing in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like someone to pray with you at the end of the service, if you'd like to talk to someone, we'll be at the door. If you're not a person that likes to put your hand up and you know you've got to get something sorted out with Jesus, then talk to us. We'll stay all night if we have to. Stuart, come and lead us with the...